sponsored by Playfair Capital. Rethink the way you live and work. Good evening and welcome to a special edition of The Chess Bet. In the absence of both uh, Phil and John, uh, today the podcast is going to be known as Beefcake FM, um, because instead I'm joined by a very special guest, my good friend El Loco, Jim Stevenson. Hi, Jim. Uh, hi, Robin. Good to see you and thank you for inviting me on. Uh, not at all. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Uh, just by way of a little introduction, Jim is a, a lifetime chess disciple. He's played since his youth and has now taught for many years. Um, he's had a, an illustrious amateur OTB career, um, featuring even an appearance at the European Team Championships for Scotland. And has also been a, a top-class correspondence player uh, back in the days of uh, snail mail and was three times runner-up in the Scottish Correspondence Championships uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, but sort of most recently, Jim is now an author, newly published with Chessable, his uh, course, The Slovenian Supernova, on the Grandmaster Albin Planets is out now, so you should all uh, check that out. Um, yeah, hello, Jim. I hope that was an okay as an introduction and uh, didn't uh, didn't undersell you too much. Um, I how you... hardly recognise myself, Robin. Thank you for that. Not at all. So you... Um, you sort of, uh, bearing in mind your illustrious career, you deigned to play at 4NCL this weekend. How was, uh, how did you get on? What's it like being back playing, uh, playing was, over the board? Hoping, I was hoping you wouldn't mention that, but no, it was uh, <laughs> nice to be back. Um, I think anyone who's played 4NCL knows that it's uh, it's always a tough tournament. It's always a lot of fun. And uh, with our team, the Celtic Tigers. Yeah, we are, we're hoping, we're hoping to finish the second half of the season well enough to be in Division 2 next season. I've um, been back to form NCL a few times and it is a very unique experience which was sort of missing however much online chess there was over the pandemic uh, and you know online you know chess 24 tournaments things like that it doesn't really uh, nothing really compares to that you know all those blokes queuing up at the hotel reception on a Saturday morning at half past one sort of clutching their plastic bags with sandwiches in them that, that is after the four hour drive up the M1 to be fair yeah of course of course were you in were you in Daventry this, this weekend or yeah yeah. yeah. Okay. That is the uh, yeah the uh, <laughs> the uh, the uh, sort of the short straw of four NCL sort of southernish kind of locations. But yeah, we should so we should talk about this uh, this this course you've covered. I'm going to sort of hand over to the floor to you in a second. I know it's uh it's well, I know a fair bit about it. Uh, having sort of had a few chats with you in its uh, sort of conception and development. But um, yeah, it's on Albert Plan. It's a lesser known um, top GM um, who is active in the 20th century um, from Slovenia. So yeah, tell us a little bit about uh, a little bit about your, your book. Okay. Um, well, it's, uh, it's a course on Chessable, um, which I think everyone's quite familiar now with Chessable and uh, very popular site it is too kind of came about by chance to be honest we had this uh, wretched lockdown period about two years ago now and um, one way or another I found myself with time in my hands and thought what can I do not to keep myself sane to keep myself at my normal level of madness and I thought hmm I've always fancied uh, writing a chess book this might be the moment to do it also uh, I was quite intrigued my friend Matt Fletcher uh, who's a he's one of these chess punks on Twitter probably a few of a few of your listeners will know him. He's a uh, friend friend of the podcast podcast always a uh, always yeah, tweeting yeah, at right. us or or rather well, always getting tweeted at by us and occasionally responding. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, we know that he's even more of a chess fanatic than I think uh, we we are to be fair. But anyway, Matt was uh, very encouraging and you know great help and actually um, showed me the ropes of it because I'm not a I'm not a great programmer and. I, I seldom know the difference between square brackets and curly brackets and what's a hyphen and what's a semicolon. And if you don't do that, then it's quite hard to uh, get anything onto chessable. But anyway, 
after several months of um, pottering about with it and uh, more importantly enjoying looking at the games of uh, Hanins, you know, who uh, is a very obscure player, but I thought that was going to be a good thing. I thought um, this list, you know, I could write about Bobby Fisher, but, you know, it's been done a thousand times before, better than I'd ever do it. So let me do some, someone I know, I've always enjoyed his games, you know, a little bit about, it'll, it'll be good for my chess, you know, of livening up my chess. And um, that was the origin of it. And uh, took, took a while to do it. As I say, without lockdown, I don't think any of us would have had the time to do something, you know, these sort of things. And... Um, did it? It wasn't. Of course, it was obviously in a you know sort of first draft rough uh, version of it. And Matt encouraged me to punt it to Chessable, actually to to have it published, which I, I thought was you know unlikely, but I'd do it. And after after a you know back and forth sorting it out, and uh, it was on the back boiler for the best part of a year. We finally finally got it completed and got it together. So thanks to all the guys at Chessable, to Heart and to Danny, who was amazing publishing manager for me and smoothed all the, 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 the parts of the process and all the, all the people who helped me with it, basically. Too many to mention, but you obviously had to be uh, tested and proofread and all this sort of thing. And uh, a certain uh, Mr. Robin Sarfas was uh, quite involved in it at one point, as I recall. Is that, is that not true? Uh, you always um, sort of asked me to do, do things here and there, and I sort of successfully managed to do just enough to make you think that I actually helped you and then never actually sort of did any of the hard work or time-intensive things. But... Um, it was quite nice uh, sort of talking to you about the book. Most of what I did was some uh, kind of uh, more suggestions and kind of advice about the kind of shape of the book. But what was really nice talking to you about it was it was obvious there was this um, massive uh, enthusiasm that you had for the for, for, for the for the chess itself. I guess this was, you know, obviously it's, uh, lots of stuff goes goes into a writing a, a book. But what came across was like your passion passion for the subject matter, I guess. So I mean, and, and that comes from from I think your sort of a interest in in planets themselves. He has a pretty. Um, you've mentioned there a little bit why you kind of wanted to cover a more obscure player, but I guess planets in particular do you want to say a little bit about his kind of style of play and, and what appealed to you about that he has a, a fairly yeah, sort of like dynamic quite attacking sort of tactical style yeah I mean I mean for sure I mean I started really getting into chess uh I mean I suppose I learned at the time of Fisher and Spassky but I started getting into it in the late 70s and Planets his games his amazing games would, would, would appear in all these you know collections or uh, various books and combinations and you know Queen C7 check against Baganian and all these famous moves, which I think everyone uh, who's ever opened a chess book in those days would have seen. But he was a player who was no longer playing, you know. In that time, that's the, the Karpov era, and all these great players, you know, Walter Browns and Boyevichs and Andersons and Timmons and all these guys. But they all lost to this fellow called Panins, who didn't play anymore. And this kind of intrigued me and few of my sort of friends at the East Kilbride Chess Club uh, near Glasgow. And uh, we also liked the fact that it was kind of crazy play because, you know, all young players like to imagine that they're Michal Tal reborn. And uh, we just loved the games. And uh, we kind of have a clue about what he was doing, obviously. I mean, the games are incredibly complicated and obscure. We loved analysing it. And he became one of my favourite players. And uh, let's just say he was an interesting character. Like a lot of his... Great chess grandmasters. He had a, a very interesting life, but um, perhaps a little bit forgotten today, you know, because his career was quite short, rather truncated. He had a few uh, personal problems which uh, held him back in, in the end. And uh, I wouldn't say he's forgotten today, but um, I do have this thing. I ask anybody, I ask people, what do you think of Alban Panitz? And anyone over the age of 
let's say 35 or 40 hasn't even heard of him and I think that's a little bit sad you know I'm a little bit of a I'm a little bit of a, a chess geek in some ways and I love all the old history and stuff and uh, I I would like everybody to have a little bit of uh, fun in their in their in their play that would be that would be a good thing I think you um you mentioned there so often when you kind of have these really chaotic positions on the board trying to muddle through just what is going on at all or having any understanding is uh, very difficult I guess obviously chess will have pretty uh, stringent requirements to do with like a sort of accuracy of the moves you go so I, I guess you had to do quite a bit of engine checking and looking over the moves was there anything sort of um, interesting you got that did you find out that you know were, was was how much was Planets playing uh, I guess what an, an engine would call accurate uh, I mean this has happened right with there's uh, sort of loads of people relitigate the games with Mikhail Tal right pointing out that you know some of his sacrifices in fact were you know sort of had, there were refutations perhaps did you find that this was the case that much but then also I guess thinking about it as a human player does it matter you know just because an engine can find a sort of perfect computer defense to, to, to some sort of attacking sacrifice um, that a human can't find does is that really important are we too focused on I guess it leads me to a broader question of are we too focused on what computers say about I mean it's, it's very interesting as I said to you when, when I first looked at these games uh, you know it's way before uh, engines uh, even existed far less were, were, were any good and um, what I found looking at them again after all these years is that obviously I had computer check everything. I didn't use the most powerful engines, but that was because I, you actually don't want to make it too complicated and overrun with your analysis and, and make it almost uh, un, un, unreadable. So um, everything has to be computer checked, of course. But the interesting thing I found was, now you have to remember this guy uh, really believed in uh, the initiative rather than material in general. That's not that he wouldn't take material. He liked unbalanced positions. But if he had the chance, he would certainly make uh, a sacrifice. And I think what reason he was doing it was actually a very modern thing. And I think he was actually a little bit ahead of his time. I mean, I would say another player really a big fan of was, was Shirov. I saw it before NCL uh, on, on Saturday. He almost banged into me. If only I could have, 1% of his talent could have rubbed off on me. But, um, but anyway, Shirov, he, he was considered a great trailblazer even for this dynamic chess in the, in the 90s, wasn't he? And Panitz kind of, he, he kind of um, foresaw this style of play. So he would often make moves which are not going to be top engine choices. But the more you look at them, the more you realise that they're actually very sound moves. You know, and uh, this is what I kept finding that the, the computer evaluation would normalize, if you like, as 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 the game went on. And um, one and, and one thing I did notice is that um, um, he was also quite quite a, a position player. He wasn't all just about about tactics. You know, that's just the the, the sort of uh, simplified uh, uh, take on it. And, uh, and a lot of his positional ideas are actually incorporated by so many modern grandmasters today, you know, um, uh, uh, playing slightly obscure openings, but analysing deeply, uh, active use of the king, even in the middle game, and tremendous emphasis on uh, coordinating his pieces before starting an attack. You know, almost every game ends with his rooks. You know, when you don't know about you, Robin, but I'm always trying to attack, and at the last minute, I think I need an extra tempo to get my rook in play. Finances, rooks are always ready, you know. And his bishops are always on the best diagonal. So a tremendous amount of um, control of a position, peace coordination, which is something I, as, you, as you, you've heard from me many times, that I always emphasise with the kids. And um, so his play was very modern, very, very modern. And I think that that, that sort of overrides any, um, any uh, issue with it maybe being the, not the absolutely best computer choice. But I would say this, once a combination started, his play was tremendously accurate, you know. 
And he was one of these guys who seldom missed an opportunity when it arose. So that's a long-winded way of answering your question to say, does it matter if the moves were absolutely best? Not really. They were they were always difficult moves. And he clearly had a he clearly Talster again, he clearly preferred to set his opponent's problems and himself problems rather than uh let's say he enjoyed it. He, he was an innovator and I think he enjoyed that kind of chess more than a a more technical outlook on the game. But there are plenty of games where he has, you know, he obviously had superb technique and some of his uh, in-games are, 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 you know, first rate. But given a choice, I think he always would go for the dynamic option. So that's a very long-winded answer. No, not at all. It reminded me of watching some of um, some of Danny King's videos on the um, on sort of alpha chess when it sort of was first launched the kind of neural network engine uh, analysis and it often sort of showed that these kind of less ai driven more materialistic traditional engines would would not do right they were very much just focused on you know like grinding out as you say quite in a quite technical way whereas you started making all these like really deep positional sacrifices and doing these sort of like bizarre insane seemingly insane things and, and actually that style of sort of really like modern neural network influenced engine chess kind of reminds me of what you're talking about there. These sort of like. That, actually, that's a great way of putting it. I, I didn't, I didn't, didn't quite think to say that, but yes, I was, I mean, I was saying how uh, even the strongest engines used to be a little bit materialistic yeah. uh, and, and, you know, fair enough, but, but you're quite right. His, his, his play, I think was probably closer to uh, uh, Leo Ciro or Alpha Ciro than to Fritz, for example, if we want to go back far enough or, or even Stockfish. Yeah. So you mentioned there, uh, who, you know, who's who's this book for, right? Like, what should people expect from it, perhaps? Because uh, obviously, there's uh, most people go to Chessable, right? They're thinking about a lot of the time it's openings. You know, there's uh, tact- quite a lot of tactics on there using the move train and stuff. But what, you know, this perhaps um, is slightly atypical in that regard. So what, you know, maybe describe the, the, the your sort of style of writing it and what you were hoping to kind of achieve um, from the actual uh, from the actual kind of um, like the course experience. Well, well, sure. I mean, I um, I didn't want to pretend that I had any great insight for a start. So my first thought was I'll try to make it more concrete and, uh, you know, uh, emphasise not so much tactics per se, but, you know, but more concrete lines of play, which could be readily understandable rather than me saying, well, this is better for black and white, but who knows why and all this. But I also wanted to make it as far as as far as I could within Chessable, where uh, there's a limit to how many variations you're going to put in. Um, I wanted to I wanted to have it on different levels. So I wanted to have something for everyone, by which I mean, I mean, you know, let's say even someone who's um, uh, not to put it in numbers, but maybe someone who's just getting into competitive chess would, would, would like it. A, a, a strong club player would like it. Even even maybe an expert player or, I don't know, let's say a 2,000 player in theory rating terms or something who plays tournaments would get plenty out of it. And the reason is I decided to structure it in, uh, a couple of different different ways because what I really want people to get out of it, apart from to enjoy it and to see this this way of chess, which is from the old days but still has a relevance today, um, was to to kind of I kind of put this to kind of show that in today's chess uh, there's so much information that when you're learning it, it's great there's always information available, but in some respects it's kind of overwhelming and you feel as if you've got to know your openings and you've got to know the hundred endings you must know. And this is all true if you want to be a very strong player. But as you know, Robin, from our discussions, I'm a big believer that when you're learning something, especially learning chess, you've got to kind of absorb ideas and think it through for yourself. 
find what works for you, what doesn't. And I wanted it to be kind of like an introduction to this is how, not a great player, but, you know, an, an experienced amateur player thinks about things. He's comparing it to a role model, if you like, this great player. Um, and here's how I see it. And what I want people to do is go through that process and to actively disagree with me, you know, because chess is all about testing ideas, evaluating, making decisions. And, and let's be honest, nobody plays perfect chess. Otherwise, it'd be like knots and crosses. You play it for five minutes. So nobody understands chess. That's the beauty of it. But we all want to understand it perfectly. OK, so to my mind, the only way you can do that is by taking it seriously, learning to analyze, learning to make decisions. I'm still doing it after 50 years. I'm still learning. OK, so I, I, that was that sounds rather grand, but that was actually the, the, the thinking behind it. I wanted to say to people, this is tough, but not impossible. And actually, whatever level you're on, there's something for you and you incrementally deepen your knowledge as you go on. And you can use, you know, classic grandmaster games. And these are quite extreme games, you know, in the sense that they're all decisive games and lots of critical moments. You can actually use that as a tool to learn just as much as you're learning a theory or uh, end games or whatever. So that, that, was, that was a rather grand idea. And the way I structured it was, the first part of it was um, an analysis, not of the whole games, but of critical points in the games, then were the exercises. But I also had a third way of which is, and I'm not sure Chester will really like this, I had to kind of <laughs> argue with him about it, but it's just take the blank game score and use what I think is called the Bronstein method, or at least that's how I think of it from some of his books, where you take the game score, you play the game through quickly, you look for critical moments, you play it through again, you think more deeply about these critical moments, put it aside for a bit, come back, incrementally build it up, finally start making your own notes, analyse it with a friend, read if there are actual annotations, run it through an engine, whatever you want to do. And this is the way of active, actively analysing, I would say. Um, so that was, a, that was another thing. I, I, I do go on about that at some length in the introduction about how, I, I mean, this is how I would approach it. You'll have your own take on it, but think about what, what, I, what I've suggested. It might be a way to uh, get into analysing these sort of middle games and things. When people annotate games, normally, right, the, the, the annotations, while they may be, um, you know, you look at a, a game annotated by a top player, often it's quite sparse and they've probably spent quite a lot of time thinking about sort of internally analysing the game themselves, but only sort of putting down sort of quite sparse notes. Whereas it, here, here it's almost like rather than you're kind of taking the, the reader a little bit on the journey that you yourself kind of went on analysing the, the games. That's to a certain that's degree, a way, people are always told to look o over games, right? And there's, but there's always disagreements on what the best way of, of doing it is. Obviously, as you mentioned there, the, 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 the Bronstein method. And, and some people say, OK, well, you should be trying to guess every single move, um, you know, before you before you look at the next one. Some people would say, well, actually, no, that's not efficient time-wise. So you should go through, you know, more quickly and just get, get a grasp of the ideas. Some people would say you should be going through every single variation you see. But I guess that what you're doing is you're... I guess suggesting what I is, is, sorry to interrupt is uh, try everything and see what yeah. works for you and try different things at different times. Yeah. You're just throwing out ideas because, yeah. you know, that's maybe the hardest thing in chess is to actually get away from the actual moves and think about the process. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you've provided and, and all the... I was going to say you've provided sort of all the information there, but then it is up very much up to the reader to then sort of take take from it what they can. And that will obviously be, like you said, the course, you know, someone someone who's a sort of a, a patser like me can 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 get 
you know can get something from this but at the same time uh, you know someone like uh you know someone who's a sort of very experienced player you know 2200 plus i'm sure would 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 find loads from this and obviously that's partly because it's a, the game's by a great player but also i think that the way that it's it, you know presenting it in this way where you um take what you want kind of way i think is is, is really nice that's right. I mean, that's right. I mean, it's 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 get you thinking. Let's put it that way. Just to say, just to say that you know, when you uh, you're quite right about these sparse notes to Grandmaster Games. There's some wonderfully annotated games, but they're really annotated for a very high level of player. They're almost like two professionals or two masters uh, having a, a silent conversation or analysing for each other. And you know, in the past, in the past in chess literature. There used to be all these fantastic stuff like Dr. Tarash's books or Nimzovich or Retty or Dr. Irv, all these fantastic players. And they wrote in a very uh, narrative style and there were lots of great explanations. And then this was criticised because people said, well, I mean, did Tarash actually ever beat anybody graded above 150? You know, everybody was his patsy, you know, uh, which, I, which obviously is not true. I'm exaggerating. But, you know, it was the games of two one side. Yeah. So at a certain point, uh, without, without trying to go through all the history in five minutes, um, the tendency became to be much more analytical because that was the way chess was being played once the Soviets took over and all the rest. And then we all eventually became what were called the children of informator, right? In other words, everything was just symbols and sort of analytical variations with an evaluation at the end of them. Informator, symbols and evaluation. I love informator. I'm a child of informator myself. Couldn't wait to go and get the latest edition from Chess Supplier, Scotland. But um, but it, what that did was it, it kind of um, left you to guess why. I mean, I'd often look at it and say, I can understand the moves, but I've no idea what that assessment means. Why is white better here? Why is white better? And all these symbols. So so obviously, I think the, the literature today is really great because now that you've got these engines, if you don't get database dumps anymore, like when computers first were being used, you know, every, every book has got to be very accurate and it's and the selling point is always going to be good explanation and good narrative. Hence, there's so many fantastic uh, books being published by all sorts of uh, companies now. And uh, probably Chess Witcher has never been better. Uh, our friend Carson would, would, would know this better than me, Carson Pedersen, of course, at Hammersmith. But, you know, his view, and he, he really knows his stuff, is that it's never been a better time, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to buy chess books and study chess literature uh, in, in all forms, from openings to end games to history to game collections and so on. So, so there are great notes out there, but there's still, I think, a little gap in the market. There is notes for grandmasters. There are lots of great works for beginners. I suppose I'm trying to pitch it somewhere in between, mm. you know. There's a lot of us out there who are just amateur chess players of a certain level, you know. We're all trying to improve a little bit, and we all know quite a lot, but we just can't kind of like bring it all together. And it's maybe trying to explain that. Here are the issues I, as I see them. Here's what I work on. Here's what I think about. And, you know, anyone reading it will hopefully um, actively engage with it and say, I agree with that. I don't agree with this. Oh, that's an interesting idea. You know, Jim's talking nonsense. He always does. And, you know, and they'll have an actual uh, a view on what I'm saying, you know, so they'll actively participate in the uh, process. I don't know if that sounds too grand, but that's that's kind of what I wanted, wanted to do. And with Chessable, you know, it's an online thing. If, if somebody points out a mistake to me, I can come in and correct it. We can have a discussion forum and all these sort of, uh, you know, like, contemporary ways of uh, discussing things and analysing it rather than here's a book and it's now closed. I mean, if I tell you that at five o'clock in the morning of publishing day, I was still making corrections and by 10 o'clock it was published, you know, 
it's 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 crazy because um, my sister's uh, really uh, talented also, and she writes all sorts of sci-fi fantasies and sci-fi novels. But she's so fashioned; it's always got well, well, no, it's a little bit unfair, but she writes books, actual books, you know, mm. paper books and stuff. And um, and she's like, oh god, the process of getting it actually, uh, over, you know, getting it in the right format and getting it published takes forever. And you know, and so she was laughing and she's saying, there you are, Jim. You you can barely string two sentences together. And your work's already out ahead of me, so um, there you go. So I, um, I do agree with what you and and our friend uh, Carsten um, says, uh, who's a sort of great aficionado of, of chess history and, and sort of chess literature through the years. If you've ever seen a photo of his bookshelf, it's like a whole library. Um, but um, what he's saying about sort of the, I guess, the, living in a sort of golden age of, of chess books, I do think is is the case. I think looking um for many reasons, it's probably much easier for a sort of a wider group of people to write chess books. And correspondingly, there is more, it's just a more competitive landscape and that's probably driven uh, quality there. So I was, I was listening to a, another podcast actually today, the Perpetual Chess episode, they were comparing a number of different um, uh, chess books specifically containing sort of positional problems. So they had all sorts like the Helston book, Mastering um, Chess Strategy, um, they had the Jeremy Silman um, reassess your chess book and the accompanying workbook, and they uh, for, for several of them there were examples where you had an older book which was like very born seen as very sort of influential and sort of you know twenty years ago would have been looked at as this is the best the best thing that's out there, but then over the years chess writers have learned a little bit more about what's going to help the audience have. Uh, you know, obviously benefit from the fact that they can engine check things much, much more easily and other, other different things that, the, you know, I guess the advance of the internet and sort of more widespread information, widespread information just meant that it's sort of to a certain degree being, being done better now. And so many of these things that are perceived as classics in their day, the best example of this would be my system, right? Nimzovich. Yeah, yeah. Sort of like yeah I, was the, I was going to say, I don't mean to be unkind, and I'm a huge fan of our kind, but he wouldn't get away, if I may say this, with the bullshit he came out with. He wouldn't yeah. get away with it. Too. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that much. No, 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 no. no. But, you know, because because it's much more rigorous. And the thing is that it's, 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 it's much more democratic. Anyone, if they want to, it's open to them to write for Chessable or any, or any of it. You can self-publish or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's still going to be with the best players and the best writers who are going to get the lion's share of the market, as, mm. as they rightly should. So, so I think because there were all these fantastic books in the past, they were slightly dogmatic and they were certainly stylistically, you know, like a little bit stilted as well. They were very yeah, stuffy, right? There was a, rest, but, yeah. but, but Chess had to move on from, from, from Nimzovich and Lasker and whoever it really did, you know? Yeah, no, the, um, there's definitely also just been a movement, I think, in writing style to make it more accessible to someone who would like read like like an, like another book, right? I think there was this very, um, as you say, dogmatic and quite quite stuffy style of writing about chess. It had to be extremely analytical, and it was almost, you know, part of the reason that you feel felt like these top players were maybe writing these books was partly because they just wanted to sort of show how clever they were. And yeah, whereas they were now, investing like, their ego, they were investing their ego yeah. in it, or it was PR yeah. for them, you might say. Yeah. And I, I think to um, I think as you you will know as an actual teacher, right? Like I think one of the things you have to do if you're going to teach well to a certain degree is leave, is, is leave your ego at the door because it's about your it's about your student, right? It's about the person who's reading it 
you know, when you write a book and, and, and thinking about catering to their needs. And so I think that that is a, um, you know, rather than just being an exercise in showing. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know me well enough, Robin, and you know, I love the sound of my, my own voice, to be fair. But but at the same time, it, you're absolutely right. It's really important that you're actually trying to do something positive and, in, and engage in a, in a discussion. Mm. Um Otherwise, otherwise, you know, it, it, unless you're, I mean, unless you're a super class player, it loses, it loses any value. I would say. So I, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but just last last question on this. You've done one now. Um, do you have any plans to sort of follow up? Have you, have you got the, the writing bug now? Or are you sort of, based on the first experience, are you looking for a sort of a long break and a golfing holiday before you, uh, <laughs> well, before you get back to, the, uh, back, back to the grindstone? Well, you know, like all these things, when you're doing it, you're really enthusiastic. And, and like I mentioned, we, you know, we had the time on our hands to do it. When I finished it, I thought, never again. You know, it's like going through a whole pile of exams. You know, you just want to go and live in a, or live in a beach hut or something for the next five years. But, but um, just to say that that planet's book is only the first part of his career, not even his best period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I will have to write the second bit of planets at some point. But I'm also writing a, another one. And this is really thanks to the great guys at Chesterfield. They're encouraging me to do another book, which is amazing. And it's going to be perhaps equally obscure. It's going to be on. Grandmaster Alexander Tolosh, who was the coach of Spassky in the 50s and Spassky's formative years, and uh, uh, quite quite an interesting character in his own in his own right, but also a fantastic player, really great player, and uh, really a big influence on Spassky. So I'm writing about him, and uh, this time I'm actually going to hopefully it's going to be a little bit more polished because uh, apart from. Uh, getting um, uh, having more idea myself on how to present it and what works, what doesn't. I've actually got someone you know, a mum of one of our young students at Hammersmith, is going to translate the book about Tolush in the sort of Black Russian series, which his uh, widow wrote. And it's it's great because it's got uh, lots of obviously biographical material. It's also got appreciation from Taimanov, Tal, uh, and Spassky, amongst others. And she's going to translate all this, and as long as we're not breaking any copyright laws for a book published in Moscow in 1982, I think it was, then I will liberally quote this because I think it will be really relevant to hear what these other great players and uh, you know who came after Tolush uh, thought about him. So, um, so I'm hoping it's probably a little bit of a long-term project, but I've started work on that, and I'm hoping, um, hoping that it will uh, maybe be slightly smoother than the, the Planets one, which I realise is. You know, it's got it's still got its rough edges. It's a, you're doing sort of a, a fantastic work here. People often talk about um, when I hear people talk about chess books, they do note the fact they often will pick up a chess book and uh, and they'll see all the games. So half the games they'll have seen, you know, classic, you know, Nigel, Nigel Short's King Walk and you know, sort of famous different famous games. Um, and, and you're really sort of what what a music fan would call digging through the crates here. You're you know looking at these sort of old like very like you know people who are massively influential but have not not appreciated in in the same way as they should be. And so bringing that shedding light on that. So I think that's a really um, awesome uh, awesome thing to be doing. And I, I can't wait to, uh, to 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 see what's next. Maybe maybe it's a little self indulgent in the sense that it's, it's what I like. But um, but but certainly yes, trying to let's just see trying to cover things which um are less well known and maybe and maybe you know put, put a different put a different uh, angle out on them 
as well, you know. Awesome. Obviously, we've mentioned mentioned Chessable a lot there. Um, they sort of have seen, I think, a lot of, of growth and, and sort of uh, att- attention in, in the last couple of years is sort of uh, the popularity of chess in the sort of like, I guess what I would say, sort of my generation and and, and sort of even like slightly uh, younger has uh, due to the lockdown primarily and sort of latterly, I guess, the Queen's Gambit seen sort of like this big rush of, of of chess and now with the internet there's you know there's ch- there's things like chessable there's you know if you go on youtube there's thousands upon thousands of videos you know talking about you know doing helping with analysis and different things there's so many resources out there so i guess coming back into now sort of uh, after the uh after the the, the the pandemic and sort of playing as we do both back at hammersmith uh, chess club what are your thoughts on sort of how chess is kind of emerging um, from from the pandemic, and what do you think about this sort of influx of of, of new players, and what have you sort of a uh, uh, people indeed who've had more time to study chess, and so the sort of improvement that you've seen from uh, from 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 club players? Yeah, I mean, I think I think in terms of actually getting back playing again, I mean, it's we talked earlier about the foreign sale, and and you know we play in the various London leagues and uh, Tim Valley leagues and what have you. I think they are taking a little bit. Of a little bit of time to get re-established. And I think some of the more traditional chess clubs are perhaps struggling a little bit, but, you know, without, you know, advertising Hammersmith too much. Um, no, please, let's do it. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> here's an example. Or Battersea, for that matter, that other fine club in yeah. London. Um, uh, there's, um, you know, some chess clubs are maybe struggling a little bit, but the, the clubs which who are, who are innovative and welcoming to new faces are the ones that are going to succeed. Mm. And, you know, you can't get away from the fact that, you know, it's all, you know, it's obviously always down to, it's always down to the people behind the scenes who put in the hard work. And Hammersmith is very, very fortunate in that respect. It's got a, it's got a committee who actually talk to each other rather than just throw things at one another. But they also listen to not just fellow club members, but they're always, you know, they're, they're always keeping the, the, the ear to the ground about what, what works and what doesn't work in chess. And, um, you know, they provide a welcoming environment. They've got this great new venue, the Mind Sports Centre. But every week there's something on. We've had Danny King, we've had John Spielman, we've had Nigel Short, we've had Harriet Hunt and Adam Taylor. Is he awesome? Oh, yeah, Adam. We've had, uh, we've had all these great players down there uh, giving lectures uh semos and they're all great you know they really uh, uh interact with the audience and uh not to mention that you know there's blitz tournaments rapid tournaments there's all sorts of things going on and a plethora of opportunity to play in uh, league matches as well so so that attracts to hammersmith a very diverse crowd you know we're chess players and chess players, none of us like this image that chess is played by grumpy old men like me or sort of geeky maths people. You know, we know that that's not true. Anyone who's ever played chess knows that it's it's a thrilling, it's a thrilling and demanding activity. I mean, it's as good as any other hobby. Hammersmith proves this. If you just look at the people who come to Hammersmith and stay, I mean, dare I say it, there's, uh, there's these guys in their 20s who've come back to chess having been whizzies when they were, were young and they're getting into it again and, you know, and they're now doing it not because their mum and dad paid me to give them a lesson they want to do it and they're really into it and they've got these sharp analytical minds and they want to use the time wisely and they've really pushed everybody including like old duffers like me to actually work on our chess you know and not only that but it's a very sociable bunch i mean how many offshoot can we say clubs are from hammer hammersmith they've got a poker club a running club Gourmet club, vegan recipe club, yeah. But you know, but it's really nice. It's a nice vibe. 
Mong mate continue. Mong mate flourish. I mean, I have been a member of various clubs that had moments of um, being, uh, you know, uh, successful and popular, and then it would it would fade away. And I don't think that will happen with Hammersmith. I think uh, I think the, the only thing that could happen is that Battersea might beat us in a match and we'll all die of shame or something. I, but, I, feel uh, it's like I, I can't I guess see that happen again anytime soon, given the recent uh, results <laughs> there. But I, I want to pick up sort of. Uh, dive in on sort of like uh, two two specific things that you mentioned in there. One was you you mentioned sort of getting people to come and stay, and the second thing was you you used the term long may it continue. I think those are the things that really need to kind of and this is not just a talking about sort of one specific club or even just clubs in general. This is sort of looking at sort of the world of chess, right? There has to be a focus on a sort of retaining people who show some sort of interest, making it sort of accessible retaining those people and then adapting in the long term to sort of keep people challenging what you're already doing right because we've had, there's been chess booms in the past right like obviously the most famous example was Fischer Spassky in, in 72 right and sort of the whole world was had its eyes on that and that had various geopolitical sort of parallels which made it sort of particularly particularly poignant at the time but after that chess was hugely popular and, and, and like in, if you look in the UK there was sort of a, a, a big wave of, of very you know top level uh british yes, players the, who the, you know like like shaw and 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 adams and and there was you know a, a real boom there the english chess explosion didn't yeah. they and, and england was i think i'm right in saying the number two nation for most of the 80s and 90s and of course probably peaked when short quick kasparov in london for the world championship was that yeah. 93 that was and um you know and i mean in some ways in some ways not, not to be negative but we're talking about the uh, 4NCL there. And as I noticed that even today, the 4NCL is guys under the age of about 21 and over the age of 50. You know, when I saw John Spielman and Mark Hebden playing this long end game at the 4NCL on Sunday, I thought that, that game could, that, that could be 1977. They were still playing it, you know. But, but you know, so there is still this thing that while some clubs are, are pretty much vibrant, um, there's, there's still this lost generation of chess, which... Which I would like to see. I'd like to see people coming back to, you know. Yeah. But you'll only get it, I feel, if you go beyond the traditional club. Yeah. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. Traditional clubs are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a very important core part of club chess. But you need to go beyond that. You need to have your online presence. You need to have your little WhatsApp groups going and chat. You need to have people meeting, as Hammersmith guys do at all times of the day and night to analyse games just because just because that's what you do you've got an idea to analyse it that's what chess players do after all you know and um, but you know it's got to be a mixture of things and it's got to be, it's uh, you, you said it Robin it's got to constantly be innovative I would say you know because otherwise um, you know you're competing for people's valuable time you know when there's so many other things other things on but the beauty of chess is that it doesn't require a huge amount of money or expensive equipment or vast amount of uh time and trouble to to set up a game i mean this is why so many people are addicted to online chess mm. yeah i mean i personally i'm not a huge fan of playing online chess but that's because i know if i started it, i wouldn't i'd never stop it you know you're that's too much of a fan if anything you're worried you'll be too much of a fan um, yeah I'll be, I'll, it'll become addictive and yeah. um, but, you know, but, a... but just but, but if you think about it the the, the online chess is a fantastic resource that chess has that other things don't mm. you know can't really play online golf or cricket, you know, mm. that easily. So, um, so you know, chess has got a lot of inbuilt advantages as long as it uses them. And the only thing I think, well, it's really not for me to give advice, but I think that some clubs should bear in mind is that things should change. 
you know. We've got to get away from we only meet on a Tuesday at 7.30 and we always adjourn the game at move 30 and, and all this sort of stuff. And I've played, played Bill for the last 30 years. I'll keep playing him and ignore that new guy that just walked in the door. I exaggerate a little, but believe me, we've all seen that in chess clubs in the past, you know. C- come and see what Batters are doing. Come and see what Hammersmith are doing. Go and see what, I'm trying to think, other clubs that do the same. There's a, a hackney of Hammersmith, Hammersmith, Hammersmith went up to Yorkshire last mm. week to play a, a friendly match with up in Elkley. And, uh, you know, go to these innovative clubs, wherever they are, uh, and um, see what they're doing and see why it is they're successful rather than moping about why, why, why your membership is dropping. Yeah, I, do, um, I, do, I do notice this. Like, I go to, going to 4NCL. We, we, last time we went, it was actually really nice. It was the first time I'd um, been to, uh, uh, sort of been to 4NCL and been sort of like, there were several people the same roughly age as me there playing a team I wasn't you know and, and, and pretty much every other team was still made up of sort of like the traditional demographic but it is nice to see that because um there are certainly people out there who are interested and it's a it's a case of making it like it feel accessible chess has right like almost deliberately uh curated this image of itself as this being very serious very you know like you get chess scenes in like from Russia with love and it's all these, you know, like very menacing, like Russian yeah, yeah. guys. And it's played, you know, everything is conducted in silence. And, and it's, it's, and it's, it's like, also difficult when you take yeah. 10 hours over the move and see 40 moves yeah. deep and... Yeah, 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 and and, and, and 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 that it's and and that it's uh, this sort of like ultimate intellectual pursuit, and actually, like you know, when it boils down to it, it's just a game, and that's not to say it's not a tremendously deep game and one which you can derive like masses of enjoyment and intellectual like stimulation. But at the same time, you it's, it's ultimately should be there to be enjoyed, and I think that chess clubs should look at themselves as as, as as and chess should look at itself as something that is like the job is to get people enjoying it make itself and, and, and available to be enjoyed yeah in all honesty it doesn't take long to play at a competent level no not at all you know I would say I would say it's easier to play a competent game of chess from scratch than to do a sport to you know let's say be a let's say to be an 18 handicapper at golf that mm. could take you a long time whereas to be a 15, 1600 foot at chess, it'll take hard work, it'll be a challenge, but you could do that in a couple, three months of playing in competitions. We see this all the time at Hammersmith. Mm. Indeed, you're a great example of that, Robin. You know, I mean, what are you now, 2000 or whatever? No, 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 quite no. That's after just a handful of competitive games, a lot of work in it, of course, put a lot of work in. So, so, so people are beginning to see about chesses, as you say, it's a challenge, but it's just a game and it's, and it's a lot of fun, you know. Um, the, other, the, the other thing I, I uh, perhaps I, Contradicting myself when I said um, it's people under 20 and over 50. Actually, it's not that. There's a lot of people sort of uh, in their 20s, nearly 30, still playing. But there's still this gap. There's still this perception that, um, you know, uh, what shall I say? Chess is too time consuming just to go to the club to play. But if you're not really serious player, why would you go and play in competitions? You know, yeah. and that's and that's kind of been trying, one of the things Hammersmith tries to bridge by the club night, if you want to, you always have a competitive game, which is useful. You know, you learn to play different time controls. You realise that if you graduate from online to over the board, that a classical game is not 20 minutes. You know, that's that's, that's a blitz game or a rapid game, really. You know, and, um, and so you're getting this experience without all the hassle involved of travelling to tournaments or what have you. It's got to stay contemporary, you know. Uh, if it does that, I'm pretty sure that chess will chess will flourish for a long time to come. 
I think I think so. I think it takes it. There needs to be like an early push because I think that the, the, the floodgates can a little bit be opened, right? By sort of just you only need a bit of that. You only need of that innovation, right? Like look, Hammersmith, right? Like the great work that was done when it was sort of you know there was a worry a few years ago that it was going to sort of cease to exist as a club, and and, and within a, yeah. a couple of years they you know approaching like two hundred members. Um, well. I, one of the key the, the sort of hidden successes of Hammersmith, following on from what you say there, is that the, as new players come in and they enjoy it, they very quickly get really involved in all the, all, all the activities and often they become the best organisers or they'll take over captaincy or they'll run this and they'll run that. Uh, and, you know, and actually that is the large part of the Hammersmith success. You know, mm. it's true that the committee do fantastic work and, you know, all this, but, but actually it's the new faces coming in who are driving the the continuous uh, uh, improvements and innovation, you know. I um, We should bring this. This is, has indeed been a bit slightly self-indulgent, us just eulogising about how great our own uh, chess club is. But I think that <laughs> it, it, should, it, should be, it should be, you know, to anyone listening, it should be viewed in the context of like... Uh, lots yeah. of clubs with similar outlooks. I mean, I, I can't name them all, but, but for example, Epsom Chess Club is another mm. club where Hammersmith have gone and played friendlies with them recently. Mm. And that's... Uh, a, a great traditional old club, but it had stopped for about 30 years. Uh, a couple of guys restarted it. And lo and behold, some of their members from back in the day, you know, in the 70s and 80s, came back and played. And I'm sure, and it's a, it's a wonderful club and a great friendly with them. And they came to our place and played at the Sam Brooks Brewery and all this sort of stuff. And I'm sure there's lots of clubs like that. You know, I mean, we're just giving an example of what, what we what we know. I'll just uh, bring this uh, little promise. That I'm, this is going to be the last time either of us are going to say the word Hammersmith. But uh, the club is holding a uh, holding a uh, its own congress um, in in June. Um, I won't say the dates because technically it's not open to the general public yet. It's only members at the moment. But do watch this space if you're a sort of local London chess player and you're looking for a reasonably uh, central uh, five board, uh, five uh, five game over the board tournament later in June. Then you uh, must come along. It'll be a chance to also come and meet famed chess celebrity Robin Sarfas. Um, I will be signing autographs and uh, taking photos with my adoring fans. So. Um, I think that uh, that um, brings us to a close, Jim. I want to thank you so much for for coming on today. Yeah, no, it's, it's been my pleasure, and uh, it's true. You know, I still enjoy. Maybe don't play as well as I'd like to, but I still enjoy chess as much as I did. Getting on for nearly fifty years now, and uh, and that's what I will say about chess. It's, it is a game for a lifetime, you know, and uh, and enjoy it. You know, I sometimes say this to some of the parents: let your kids enjoy the process, <laughs> uh, rather than worry about. We, there's only one point to go round. Sometimes nobody wins in a game of chess. So enjoy the process and uh, and uh, and spread the good word. Get let's get the whole world playing chess. That would be a, that would be a I think an imp- an improvement for the world if we could all do that rather than uh, drop bombs on one another. Yeah. And one <laughs> um, one more time, they should uh, they, all the world should should come on and, and and start playing chess, and all of them should head to chessable to buy a uh, Slovenian supernova album planets. <laughs> There we go. Right, of course, got yeah. your little, uh, got your little, uh, got a plug in for you there, Jim. No, uh, thanks a lot. Um, and yeah, um, uh, thanks for everyone for listening as well. 